1: Marriage is the best thing and the hardest thing you will ever do. It's designed to bring up every last detail of what needs to be addressed in us, in how we give and how we receive. And we're going to do that with the person that we spend the most time with and have the most, hopefully, the most trust build up. And so that um, will naturally happen and it can be hard at times it can be painful at times but it can also be incredibly rewarding and growing and that's how it was meant to be
2: dear young married couple you're in a busy season of your life you're probably working and involved in ministry on top of that you might even be parents or students you're maxed but you really want to stay connected in your marriage
0: And that's why we're bringing this podcast to you.
2: I'm Adam King.
0: And I'm Carissa King. And we work with busy couples just like you in our counseling office here in Sacramento, California. We also work with couples all over the world through online counseling. And our couples are really just looking for ways to communicate with each other more effectively. Some of them are looking to heal from a breach in trust or find direction in fulfilling the purpose that God has for them.
2: So come and join us as we have a conversation. We'll talk with therapists authors pastors and other couples who will pour into us giving us tools to become more intimately connected get adventurous and find purpose
0: welcome to another episode of the dear young married couple podcast today we are talking about how we love how attachment impacts our marriage
2: we are so happy to have linda carlos on the show with us Um, right before we started I asked her, how long have you been doing this, counseling and uh, doing therapy with clients? And she thought for a minute and said, 1987. (laughs) Immediately, I was like, whoa. So I was born in 1987. So you have been doing this as long as I have been alive. (laughs) We're so thankful because you have so much to offer our listeners today. So thank you for being on.
0: Linda's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and uh, she has a lot of certifications. Um, She's very qualified to be talking with us today about attachment. And uh, side note, she was actually my supervisor And before I got licensed, she helped me prepare for my board exam, and um, she taught me yes, (laughs) and she taught me so much, um, not just as a uh, as a therapist, but also as a mentor and
1: as a Christian woman. So thank you, Linda. Well, thank you. So we're going to talk today about uh, an attachment theory that has lots of complex parts to it, and because of that, we're going to break it down in the beginning a little bit and then, um, review that throughout the talk so you don't get confused. Okay. And, uh, attachment is something that is very, very basic. If you think about, um, maybe something you've seen on a channel six or, excuse me, on a, um, educational TV station or, um, um, a documentary where they're, um, Showing you bonding between a mother and a baby or Mm -hmm. between a father and a baby. Um, And so the baby is being held in the arms and looking up into the mother's face and the mother's looking down into the baby's eyes and there's coos and there's smiles and there's um, just a connection that you just kind of know and it warms you and you just love watching that. And they, sometimes the mom will hum or say, say a sound and the baby will try and echo it mm-hmm. and they get very good at that and so um that all of that is connection and bonding and attachment and what we know now is there's so much more associated with it in the world of neuroscience. So when that's happening, little new neurons are firing in a part of the brain that doesn't fire any other time, Mm -hmm. and they're called mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. And that's when that brain really turns on and those bonding chemicals really flow. And so um, it's a very, very important concept, and um, if you are, um, as Adam and Carissa in your Um, anywhere under mid thirties, um, you will, um, probably know this and, uh, your parents will probably have some idea about it. But for me, um, this is new in my generation and it's really new to my parents' generation. So theoretically we could be doing great work at, creating better bonding, better attachment as we go forward generation to generation. But for some uh, who are in my generation or before, they are the product of the previous generation who didn't really know a lot of this Mm, and who were the product of their parents' generation Mm -hmm. who didn't really know a lot of this. The experts back in those days um, thought that if a caregiver... Uh, a, a parent usually, uh, gave food and water and shelter and, um, picked you up, uh, often enough, changed your diapers, um, got to know your cries. That was pretty good parenting. And, you're doing uh, great if you're doing that. yeah, you're doing great if you're doing <laughs> that. And there really wasn't much look beyond that. And so back in like Freud's day in in the early psychology days, um, of this generation of this, uh, last century. Um, there was this guy named John Bowlby who thought there's more to it than what Freud was coming up with or some others I- at the time were coming up with. And, uh, he's the one, he's really the author of the attachment theory. And, um, he looked at so many other things and he was looking at primates and he was looking at babies and he was looking at just how their little systems, um, respond. And when they don't have what they need, not just the basics of being changed and fed and sleep, but, um, when they don't have, um, soothing and bonding and, um, comforting from their caregivers, there's major disruption in their development. Mm-hmm. And so, and how does that impact us as adults? Right. So, uh, we're going to get a little bit more to that. I um, okay. can go into that now. Sure. Um, <laughs> so, um, the three components that, uh, most people would agree, most experts would agree that uh, determine sufficient attachment is if your caregiver is near, physically near. So if you're a baby and you're crying and they come and the baby is able to see them, um, that's, that's a comfort to them Mm -hmm. just to know that they cry and somebody comes. And so that's the first component. The second component is that, 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 Caregiver is responsive. So they know the cry. They know what that baby needs. They know when they need to be picked up. They know when they need to be held. They know when they need they're thirsty or hungry uh or need changing. They know all that. And so they're very responsive to those needs or they figure it out fairly quickly. And then also just the um the um non-verbal kinds of things or even verbal kinds of things that are said in those exchanges. Mm -hmm. Um, the compassion, the, um, you know, Oh, gosh, it feels so icky right now, doesn't it? We're going to get that diaper changed. Mm-hmm. You know, just that is soothing to a baby. And so that's another way of responding. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is attuned, that they are attuned. So they know those cries and they know, gosh, it's quarter to 12. I'll bet you're hungry or it's, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, gosh, it's getting close to seven thirty, eight 8 o'clock at night. You know, you're, you're getting tired and fussy. So th- they know how to anticipate mm-hmm. and know when things are kind of predictable and then they kind of tune into their child to know um, what how they can best respond. So like to their the caregiver
0: child. is aiding the child in developing self-awareness.
1: Very good. Yes, yeah. that's exactly it. Okay. so so the three are being near being responsive and being attuned. And okay. so that that kind of makes sense to us. And mm-hmm. so when that happens sufficiently enough, consistently enough over time, then that baby develops, a sense of security with that caregiver. Mm -hmm. They develop a sense of being loved with that caregiver and that gives them a sense of Mm self-confidence. It's like their world is starting to get a little predictable and they can, really feel confident enough then to go explore their world. So if you think about a baby's development, you know, at about nine, 10, even before that six months, they start to crawl and they start mm-hmm. to crawl away from holding on to mom mm-hmm. and go reach for something that's shiny and Ex, you know, exciting looking. <laughs> and, uh, that's part of their exploring their world. Yeah. And so then by, you know, 10 to 12 months, they're walking, right. And they're walking and they're finding all kinds of, you know, all the things that you didn't childproof yet. And, and <laughs> We're in stacks. that stage. Right yeah. Now. And the sta- I'm looking at it. Uh, the <laughs> right. stacks of books and the, and the thing, you know, the outlets and all the things that you forgot about mm-hmm. and the knobs on the doors and drawers yep. and all of that, they're starting to explore all that. And so for babies to explore and be very curious is a great sign because Mm -hmm. that saying their development is right on time and right along the lines of where they need to go and they feel secure enough to go do it
0: so
2: what's funny just the other day chris and i took the kids to a park and we were (laughs) lounging in a shaded area and then adeline just jumps up and decides to go for a run in the grass there was a big grassy area in front of our picnic And she kept running and we noticed, oh, well, there's a park in the distance. She's probably going to go to the park and kept running and running. (laughs) Then Krissa looked over at me and said, well, there's secure attachment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She knows you'll follow her if she gets too far, right? (laughs) So that's all secure attachment. And so when babies have that with their caregivers, they are pretty good to go. And their caregivers are learning how to care give in appropriate ways. And it just gets... It it works really well, Mm -hmm. and so there's a confidence, there's a sense of exploration, and they're beginning to um, form their own self esteem that they're Mm -hmm. that they're uh, very capable of doing new things all the time, and so that's called secure attachment. And Mm -hmm. probably about um, I think that the studies are somewhere between like. So oh, 50 to 75% that's okay. just really rough, but, um, estimate of people have some form of secure attachment. Okay. So that might sound like, um, as we're adults and we're wondering, is that us or mm-hmm. not, That might sound like, um, I find it easy to share my feelings with people I'm close to, Okay. or I like it when my partner wants to share his or her feelings with me, Okay. or I am comfortable getting close to others, but I also feel comfortable being alone. Mm-hmm. or I expect my partner to respect who I am mm-hmm. or I expect my partner to respond to my needs in a sensitive and appropriate way. So there's
0: both a giving and receiving yes. aspect of secure attachment. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, absolutely. It goes both ways because that's how it's formed. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit like a blueprint. That's what I call it okay. uh, inside of us. And so if we had secure, if we had secure attachment, then, um, it's forming this little blueprint that then we go out and try and replicate it. And that works wonders when we're securely attached, but many of us are not securely attached Mm -hmm. or not completely securely attached. And so what that looks like, um, in the form of insecure attachment is when we try and as a child, when we try and, connect to our caregiver to get that near responsive attuned Mm -hmm. caregiving and it doesn't happen in a moment. So maybe we're fussy, maybe we need something and we're trying to get our parents' attention and our parent is... They don't have to be bad parent. They can just be preoccupied parent or sure. busy parent, or there's two other kids they're trying to help or mm-hmm. whatever. And so, uh, what we do is we kind of get a no in our bid for their attention and we'll go into attachment behaviors that will help us seek kind of like a Mm do-over with them. And so that might be visual checking, like the baby who crawls around the corner and then comes back and looks. Uh And sometimes they'll echo. And if you echo back, they're good to go and they don't come back and check. Mm -hmm. Um, They signal their need for contact. They sometimes plead or that classic little picture of when they're old enough to stand and they cling onto a leg. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so um, all those are their do-over bids with their parent of trying to get what they need in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that works just fine and it kind of loops back and results in somewhat secure attachment again. But when it doesn't loop back into that and those extra attempts don't work well, then what they usually develop is a kind of fear and anxiety. And we call that insecure attachment. And it can look a couple of different ways. Okay. uh, Actually, three different ways. So, the first of the insecure attachments is what we call ambivalent attachment. And it's when the child tunes up their attachment behavior in order to get that caregiver to respond to them. Okay. And in that child's mind, um, now it's all about their parent. And so they're, they're doing anything they can do, turn themselves inside out to get that parent to pay attention to them, to help them, to assist them and to um, help them feel more secure in whatever it is that they need in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so the focus shifts from what the child needs to the parent and what they can do with that parent to get their attention to shift back to them. Mm. And so as adults, if you think about the implications mm. of that yeah. in our little blueprints that we carry within us, that might look like, I really like, sharing my feelings with my partner, but he or she doesn't seem to be as open as I am. So the focus is on them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. My feelings can get out of control very quickly because that fear and anxiety can take over. Mm -hmm. Right. I worry about being alone. There is a real insecurity about being alone. I can remember being in my, um, twenties on my own for the first time. And I was pretty good about being alone and it kind of helps to be an introvert and all of that. (laughs) But I had friends who were more extroverted and they didn't like being alone Mm -hmm. and they would seek people out and they would seek activity and seek busyness because that, they didn't really know why at the time, and I learned later mm-hmm. it was because that was a way they managed their anxiety. Yeah. And I meet people all the time who do that. And right now, as we're sheltering in, <gasps> yes. oh my gosh, mm-hmm. everybody who <laughs> struggles with <laughs> mm-hmm. that, yeah. it feels isolated. They've got to be busy. They've, they, you know, they feel like all their best vices that help <laughs> them calm are gone, right. and they can't go to them right now. So it's very difficult for them. So, sure. um, so that's a little bit about ambivalent attachment. Okay. Um, also ambivalent, uh, people who are ambivalently attached might worry about being abandoned in close relationships. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's not enough to secure someone in a relationship. Then they immediately shift to being worried about keeping that person in the relationship mm-hmm. and they're preoccupied with that. Okay. Interesting. Um, and then the last one is my partner complains that I am too clingy and emotional. <laughs> and so sometimes, um, people with most of the time, people who have ambivalent attachment, uh, tend to cling, okay. tend to be emotional, tend, they are pretty aware of their needs and not necessarily neediness, but needs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they, really want the other person to know. And so they're going into extra effort behaviors to get that person to know Mm -hmm. that. So that's that, if that sounds like you, you might write that down and I could be an ambivalent attacher right now. There you go. Take notes, folks. Take notes. So that's, and then we'll talk about more that that might mean later. Okay. And so the next one is called the avoidant attacher. Okay. And the avoidant attacher actually turns off their attachment behaviors because what they've concluded is, I just need to uh, need less. If I'm pretty good to go just like I am, then, um, then I'm going to be okay. And it's, it sounds kind of adaptive, but it's really a false, adapting because Mm -hmm. we all need one another. Yeah. We're made to need one another. Remember those mirror neurons that are supposed to turn on. And so, um, and so when people do that, they're actually rejecting connection with Mm -hmm. another person and saying they need less of it. And, you know, it's kind of the John Wayne. I don't know what, uh, I don't know if we have a current character in (laughs) celebrity. Yeah. But, but
2: so, so what they're doing in a way is kind of turning off their own, Need for others in order to protect themselves from that feeling of distance from other humans.
1: Right. So it's kind of like they don't know it, but there's a dial that they've dialed down on Mm. inside of themselves. And they've just kind of went, no, I'm good to go. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I don't need much. I'm low maintenance. We know that Uh, phrase, right? I'm low maintenance. You're high maintenance in comparison. Yeah. And in actuality, what they're saying is they've turned that dial down Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a false way of being okay Mm -hmm. when it isn't really being okay Mm -hmm. because they didn't get what they needed. So, um, Mm -hmm. So that's an avoidant attacher. And then the last style that is often talked about in insecure attachment is really um, pretty severe and it's called disorganized attachment. And typically um, we therapists associate that with people who have been through Mm -hmm. multi-trauma childhoods. And um, they've just learned that there there's something wrong with them that they can't get the care and nurture that they needed, and there's something wrong with the people around them that they couldn't give it to them. Mm. So a little bit of truth in that, but, um, but also within that is, um, all kinds of situations that are not abuse that we would call abuse, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. maybe there's a parent who's chronically ill. Maybe there's, um, a situation that is, is chronic and, mm-hmm. you know, right. a, um, a struggle in a family right. or who knows, uh, and, yeah. and they're just doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. But, um, the amount of hopelessness that sinks in is pretty significant. And yeah. that blueprint is what that person carries into their relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. So it becomes an identity statement. Very much so. Yeah. Very much. so. Do you also see that? personality disorders can develop from disorganized
1: attachment? Sure. So you want to say a little bit about personality disorders first? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. (laughs) Um, So personality disorders are what we would consider maladaptive styles of relating that kind of take over where they aren't just um, like in our back pocket that we pull out when we absolutely need them, but they really take over and become the way we relate to our world, to our, mm. everyone in our life. And, um, it's, it, they they limit, uh, how we get our needs met. They limit how we, um, take how we give and how we receive. Yeah. And so our relationships look accordingly and mm. they're pretty severe. What would
2: those, like, what, what are the labels that people would call so, those? Yeah.
1: Um, I, I, please, if you're going to hear a label, Um, do your research to look up what it really means because in our culture, we have taken a lot of those labels and made them everyday things and they're way off from what they Mm -hmm. originally mean. Mm Totally. So, um, so one is borderline. One is narcissistic, Mm -hmm. right? What, um, antisocial yes. those are ones that we use in everyday language pop psychology but, yeah in pop psychology but we uh, it's usually used wrong okay. and um and it and I think people love to um diagnose their friends and their <laughs> and their family members <laughs> and you do. and people yeah. they don't get along with and they sure. use that and um unfortunately it's very seldom accurate yeah so I just want to say that there you go okay So So with a
2: disorganized, how does that play out within a relationship? How do they act like
1: toward their spouse? spouse? Well, first of all, they may not get married Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they'd have to, if you think about it, I mean, they'd have to, um, risk pretty high. In order to think that that was a worthwhile endeavor and they could, I mean, Mm -hmm. anybody can fall in love and we know how powerful that is. So they could definitely do that. But to sustain it, Mm -hmm. to sustain closeness in relationship may be very difficult for them and difficult for the people around them. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't, um, I mean, if they get help, if they realize what's missing and they start to really work on it, absolutely. These are not, um, these are not life sentences by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. We can, uh, change, we can grow, we can, um, become more uh, healthy in who we are and overcome a lot of these difficulties. And
2: there's a spectrum. Yes. You could be very much. Absolutely. A narcissist, but then also dial that back and.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: So a question for you Linda, when an avoider and someone who's ambivalent, when those two types of attachment styles get together, mm-hmm. what do you typically see in your office? Okay.
1: So, um I I see that fairly often mm-hmm. that it would be an ambivalent person and an avoidant person. And it doesn't always look like we think it might look, which is the woman's more clingy and the man is more aloof. Um, <laughs> okay. It doesn't always look that way. And so, uh, but what, when I see that in my office in couples um, it's usually uh, creates kind of a pursuer distancer kind of dynamic in their relationship. So if they're having an argument and the Person, uh, the the avoidant person just feels like they're starting to get upset, and they're and voices are starting to raise, and they're seeing their spouse really starting to, to um, become more and more upset. Things are escalating. That chances are that avoidant person is going to want to take a break, mm-hmm. want to stop what's going on, mm-hmm. uh, not want it to get worse. And because that would just be horrible for them. And so th- what they'll do is they'll say, um, I'm leaving for a bit or I'm going to go cool down or this is over for tonight or whatever, or not
0: say anything and- or not say anything. <laughs> just yeah, just, they, just, they don't have those skills
1: Yeah, and, um, and they will try and end things and mm-hmm. to someone who's ambivalent to somebody who, um, Boy, they just want that connection. It's like, no, you can't do that. You yeah. can't back away from me. You can't uh, withdraw right now. That's like the scariest thing in the world, right? Yeah. We're uh, like, I'm, I'm starting to bleed out here with my feelings, mm-hmm. and you want to go away? You got to be kidding me. And so they start mm-hmm. following them, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they'll follow them into the bedroom or out into the street or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, and then it just makes everything worse. So I have couples who have done that in their arguments. Um, when they come in and tell me about them, I have them stand up and actually we break it down very slowly. Like, okay, so what happened first? You said this. And, and so you stand up. And so they actually replay yeah. the argument. And then, and then when he, when he said that, you said what? And then she'll share what she said. And if she happens to be the pursuer, um, then I'll have her step forward and, mm. then, and then I'll look at him and I'll say, and when she did that, and she started to follow you. What did you do? And so then he takes two steps back and lucky I have a pretty big office mm-hmm. because we. I have a move all the way around the That's office, brilliant. back and forth, yes. um, acting, acting yes. this out. Yeah. And they can actually feel what they felt in yeah. the moment mm-hmm. when they act it out and that makes it all that more real. And so then we can stop and pause and talk about it and calm down and they can really see not only what it's like for them fully, but what it's like for their partner fully. Mm-hmm. and, and then we can start strategizing about what needs to happen. And there's all kinds of great strategies that help calm things down and help them connect.
0: Can you share with us maybe a strategy or two?
2: Hey friends, we'll be right back to our interview, but one quick note. If you love what you're listening to, you might also enjoy going through our card decks that we designed to help couples stay connected and in each other's world.
0: So there's Foundations, which is our starter deck, and it's all about boosting your communication skills. And then there's Sexpectations, which is all about spicing up your intimate connection. And then there's Realizations, which is a deck for all couples, but especially dating or engaged couples who want to see how well they really know each other. So grab a deck or two or three by heading over to our website, dearyoungmarriedcouple.com slash cards.
2: All right, back to the show.
1: One would be out of, um, emotionally focused therapy and, uh, Dr. Susan Johnson. And she would say, um, you know, there's no bad guy. Um, it's, uh, because that's what happens in the situation is, is kind of somebody's labeled as the bad guy Mm -hmm. and, um, there really is no bad guy. And so to try and, and acknowledge more positively or more compassionately, What's going on for the other person? Like, I know it's scary when you see me back away from you. I'm not letting go. I'm not, um, disconnecting from you. Mm -hmm. I need to calm down so that we can connect. So let's, let's agree. Let's take a break for 45 minutes Mm -hmm. or 30 minutes. And then, let, you know, if we are sufficiently calmed down, we're going to sit down on the sofa with a cool glass of water and we're going to talk about this really slowly until we yeah. understand each other better. And, and love that. When that connection can be um, maintained and come back to and revisited, then it calms down the ambivalent yeah. person, right? Yes. Um, and if that ambivalent panicky. person
0: knows that they're going to come back
1: to it, right and they can trust that they're going to right. come back. Right. They
2: don't have to pursue. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Like that. And that's where the avoidant needs to learn that that is their role. They need to not only reassure that they are coming back but actually you know make sure there's a time and a place that they're coming back to meet mm-hmm. and then that they are faithful to do it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not faithful to do it then ruptures in that trust can really it's So happen. good
2: because that 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 means that both of the spouses need to grow at one aspect of this dance. Sue Johnson Mm -hmm. does say that like, no one's the bad guy. It's the cycle that people get in. Yes. That that's the bad guy. Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's the beautiful thing about that therapy is, um, you're as a couple, you're uniting against what they call the demon dialogues that go on in the, in the dysfunctional dance between them. So the couple is not against one another. They're united against that pattern that just, Um, kicks them in the butt, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's really important. So let me go back. Um, I can't remember if I actually um, read the characteristics of an avoidant um, um, attachment style. So let me go back and do that. So if you happen to be avoidant, you don't like sharing your feelings with others. You don't like it when your partner wants to talk about his or her feelings. You might have a hard time understanding how other people feel. When you get stressed, you try and deal with the situation all by yourself and you really don't need close relationships. At least that's what you tell yourself. Mm. So that's an avoidant. Okay. Okay. And then the disorganized, the one that I mentioned last about, um, coming out of trauma situations and just really hard, uh, childhood experiences, um, might these things might apply to them. My feelings are very confusing to me, so I try not to feel them. My feelings are very intense and overwhelming. I feel torn between wanting to be close to others and wanting to pull away. My partner complains that sometimes I really am needy and clingy and other times I'm distant and aloof, which is Mm. really confusing for your Mm -hmm. partner. Um, and then I have a difficult time letting others get close to me, but once I let them in, I worry about being abandoned or rejection rejected. Mm. So it's both coming at them. It's yeah. both coming from within. And it does it doesn't feel like they fall to one end or the other. It's just all messy in yeah. that, in those experiences. Mm. So that's why it's really hard for a disorganized person to sort out their own feelings. But they again, mm-hmm. when you give somebody who's an adult the experience of a healthy, secure attachment in a relationship, not necessarily a romantic relationship, any relationship, mm-hmm. they can start to heal and learn how to trust. And, and some of those developmental stages that were passed up for them before are reclaimed wow. and they can begin to develop and move on yeah. in that. So, you know, it's, it doesn't happen all the time, Mm -hmm. but when people seek help and they stay with it, it does happen. They can be transformed people.
0: Um,
1: I have a good friend who's also a therapist who, um, had a very, I would say a disorganized attachment growing up, uh, with a mentally ill mom and she would describe herself as a feral female and <laughs> um and not wanting to be close to anyone but longing for relationship and um she actually uh got married and um t- she first was a drug and alcohol counselor and so she could understand mm. other people in similar situations who wow. couldn't make sense of their own feelings and tried to stay away from she those she could recognize it she could recognize it and so she um just kept working on on herself and her marriage. And she is an entirely different person today. And she is, she's a, the best grandma ever bonding with her grandchildren and just, um, it's a story of healing. Yes. She's a great friend. She's teaching other people how to do this, mm. um, in wonderful ways and how to recover from it. So, so it's neat. Really possible. That is so neat.
0: So to review, Um, we have the secure attachment style and then we have an insecure attachment style, which can look like three different things, um, which is the ambivalent, the avoidant, and then the disorganized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so folks, if you want to get more of a hang of like, which one is me, um, you can actually take an assessment and we'll link one here in the show notes that Linda has provided. So Linda, share with us more about some themes that you see playing out in the couples that you work with.
1: Right. So sometimes I'm not necessarily thinking automatically when I first meet with a couple of what's their attachment style. Okay. Um, sometimes I'm just listening for what they're experiencing with one another and then trying to kind of deduce it or go backwards and hypothesize a little bit and then keep listening for the language that they use with each other and some of the typical situations they get into. Okay. So one of them would just be uh when one of the partners um experiences they're telling me that they're experiencing in their relationship abandonment, loss, or aloneness. Okay. So that's just a real common theme. One of them, and not always the woman, will um, express that in some way. They feel that their partner is just not as responsive as they want them to be, not as available as they want them to be, um, wrapped up in their career and happy with that, mm. uh, wrapped up with the kids and happy with that. Yeah. Um, and they're just feeling like they're down on the priority list. Okay. And so that isn't necessarily going to, S- uh, determine that they have insecure attachment, but it's just something that is a common theme that I start to listen for. Okay. So that's one. Another one would be if if someone is feeling undervalued, they're seen as inadequate, not very not um, um, the, what they have to offer is not really very valued mm-hmm. uh, by their spouse, and so they end up feeling unworthy or unlovable in that. Yeah. And a lot of times. They'll notice that in their marriage or their adult relationship, but what they didn't notice is that that's what they felt the whole time growing up. And so sometimes that's a connection that will really be important for them to look at. Okay. Um, Sometimes it's someone who has a lack of safety or support in their relationship. Uh, they doubt that they'd be ever be put first, that they could count on their partner. And as a result of that, they're pretty overwhelmed by the stress, um, going on for them. Okay. And so that's a common theme. Um, sometimes people have the sense that they feel like they do not exist in the mind of the other, like the other just goes about their business, and they don't really think about them at all. And they come home, and they just kind of fall into routines, and they aren't really um, connected to in a way that matters. Okay. And so they, th- that person would feel kind of like they're on the peripheral, they're dispensable, um, and that affects their sense of their themselves. And again, mm-hmm. same situation, they'll see it in their adult relationships, but they'll come to realize that they felt that growing up as well.
0: Mm. Does that realization itself bring a sense of, um, not just insight, but does it, spur people to
1: action sometimes. Sometimes. And sometimes they feel like to go back and look at their childhood is just going to be more of the same and there's hopelessness there too. Mm. And so it takes a while before they, that's where therapy is really important is Mm -hmm. to be able to experience if you, if you don't have a sense of your own value and importance and you can experience that in a therapy room with a therapist who gets to know you and spends time really listening to you and yeah. can start to call your strengths and your giftedness and your uniqueness out and highlight that. And mm-hmm. that may be the first time you've ever heard that. Mm-hmm. That can be powerful. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. So uh, really focus on strengths because we think being in a therapist's room is only focusing on weaknesses. Yeah. Right. And it, there's a whole other side to that. That can mm. be, it can be your best hour of your week. Yeah. So yeah, There you go. There's a plug for therapy. (laughs) Um, And then um, sometimes people feel that the risks that they experience uh, in reaching out are... are pretty high. Mm. (laughs) And they feel very fearful of asking for attention or for admitting need. And I can relate to this one. Okay. Um, I, uh, it's always, I'm, I'm an introverted child. I'm a youngest child. My sibling is, um, six and a half years older than I am. So he's, uh, he's always been in school, Mm -hmm. you know, basically. And so I was the little one in tow with my mom who (laughs) was busy and involved and she loved activity. And so I was always in tow with her. Mm. And before I really had a lot of language uh, to go with it, if I had to ask for something I needed, that wasn't always easy. Yeah. She was preoccupied. She was, you know, t- taking on roles and responsibilities beyond our home and, sure. um, And so I kind of felt like I could just be quiet and kind of fit in and eventually things would happen for me, but I didn't understand that I had to advocate for them that came much later. Mm. Um, and I still struggle. There's still a little girl inside of me that doesn't always want to talk about her needs. And, and, um, you know, there's all this, the stuff that our um, culture puts on us about self sufficiency and independence. And I can remember being in graduate school. And if I had to, you know, ask my parents to help on a dentist bill that was higher than my budget would allow. Um, I felt like I was compromising my independence in my Ah. 20 somethings. Yeah. And that was crazy. And I had to kind of, uh, how my friends had to help me work that into my thinking so I could, you know, it doesn't mean any of that. I'm independent and I'm on my way to a fully healthy adult life, but, um, this situation happened. It doesn't take that away. So Mm -hmm. lots of things like that. And I'm sure there's many, many people, uh, in their twenties that can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a transitional time. Right. I think
2: what's so, such a huge takeaway here is that Like you were saying, none of us outgrow the little kid inside of us.
1: She's right there. He's right there with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And, and, and being aware and self-aware enough that, oh, this is now, I see a pattern here. Right. Kind of help you in the future. Like, so you know that, that that's a pattern for you. So now forward, if you do have that, "Mm, I probably shouldn't ask for help. Then you're like, wait, hold on. That's a pattern. I'm probably okay to ask for help here because right. mm-hmm. right. I know that that's maybe a blind spot for me. Right. That's really good. Right. I like that. Yeah. Right.
1: And you have to kind of practice it and you have to keep, you know, the, the, um, um, inaccurate thoughts, right. The lies that you carry mm-hmm. in your head about that. You have to keep kind of correcting and rewiring your brain to tell yourself the truth about that. Yes. And there's lots of ways, uh, through neuroscience that we, that are, um, Shortcuts to actually helping our brains rewire to truth, and that's a mm-hmm. wonderful new uh, avenue to go into as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, uh, whole nother podcast right a whole there. Podcast <laughs> right there. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I'm hearing two two themes in how you help people when you notice all of these dynamics taking place. Um, One is you focus on strengths, Mm -hmm. and then another is you help them um, with a paradigm shift, and a lot of that is in the rewiring process Mm -hmm. so that they're noticing when that inner child is um, kind of convincing them of something that's not quite the truth.
1: Mm -hmm. And going back to what Adam said, uh, it's becoming that attachment figure to the younger person inside of ourselves. So Mm -hmm. do we draw near to that younger child Mm -hmm. inside of us, or have we wanted to kick them to the curb our entire lives because they make us feel things we don't want to feel. Mm -hmm. So when we learn that, you know, that just creates more and more conflict within us. And instead, when you go toward that, that little girl or that little boy inside and be near with them, be responsive to what they are or were feeling, mm-hmm. and be attuned to them and start to to suspend judgment, start to approach with curiosity and start to build a relationship with mm-hmm. them the way that you needed your caregiver to um that's how repair can also happen it's self compassion so yes. and it's so good mm-hmm. and then if if you are um coming from a position of bringing your spirituality into Mm -hmm. that, you already know something about having, you know, something bigger than yourself, loving you unconditionally. And because of that, you can extend that to your younger part of yourself. Absolutely.
0: I love that. Yeah. So, uh, if you're starting, if you're listening to this and you're starting this journey of learning to have compassion on that inner child, that younger self, um, and, and become that attachment figure. Um, it's okay to start that by, um, first writing a letter in prayer, even, Mm -hmm. um, first to your attachment figure, um, you know, as the Lord, you're writing this letter in prayer and then you can write a letter to your, your inner child and Mm -hmm. talk about the compassion that you're having and the advice
1: you wish you would have received. Mm -hmm. Right. That's one way to do it. Another way that we're kind of, um, I'm starting to learn more about and that friend I was talking about earlier, who's teaching other people how to, um, securely attach, uh, is now going into this area. Um, there's a way to, oh, to, uh, write out kind of like a prayer, like you said Uh to God, um, about what you're carrying, what concern you have, what your focus is on that you want to share with God or need help with, Mm -hmm. and then stop and actually write God's response back to you. Mm. So what does God, or it's a way to attune to yourself, but it's Mm. also, if you have that spiritual component, it's just so powerful. What does God see you doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I see you carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. I see you carrying worry and anxiety all the time. If you think, yeah. if you take the, the, um, virus right now yes. and just being, you know, mm-hmm. uh, quarantined and being at home and, um, not quite knowing how we're going to get back on our feet again. And mm-hmm. for some people that is just overwhelming anxiety. Yeah. And so to just like write, Pour that out, mm-hmm. right? And then stop. And then, what is God? Want to say to you? What does he see? How does he attune to you and draw near to you and respond to you in words and with compassion and with loving eyes and a soft voice? That's that, so good. Yeah, that just ministers to you. I love that. Yeah. So there's lots of using that one in session <laughs> to do that. That uh, can be really powerful. So yeah. much of
2: this, like that, is so awesome. But you won't have that powerful experience and aha moment if you just don't do it. Right. 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 right? Like that's, I could just see how powerful that would be for yeah. someone. Yeah. yeah. But they have to actually sit down and take the time.
1: Yeah. And that's, I watch. think that's all of us. I think that's all our biggest struggle is when we don't do that, when we go, Oh, that's a great idea. And then we don't do it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> or we, mm-hmm. or we go, oh, I'll have to set time for that. And we never do, mm-hmm. you know, we just let busyness and our, old routines or whatever get in the way of that. It's like, if we want the same result, keep doing the same thing. If we want something new and something different and really begin to kind of, um, uh, give the best to yourself that would promote growth and going forward and healing, then we've got to, we've got to put something new into that equation and experience it different.
2: Yeah. You yeah. can't keep just banishing the the little child inside of you to the basement.
1: No, no. <laughs> I, you know, I have a couple right now who um, got a puppy about a month and a half or two months ago. And um, I actually have several people I know who have done that. And, <laughs> and it's really interesting to me. It would be pretty crazy for us to think, I'm going to get a puppy and I'm going to bring it home and it's just going to be the best dog. It's just going to be the best puppy. Yeah. And then we we act as if nothing changed, Mm. you know, so we don't clean up after it. We don't feed it. Mm. We don't give it any attention. Nothing really changed, right? It's all the same, right? Well, there, there would be a really negative outcome about that smell, right? (laughs) Mess, all that kind of stuff. But even more so, um, that puppy would not have what it would need to develop into that great dog that we have a vision for. Mm-hmm. So can we have the same vision for ourselves? That's so good. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, we can apply that same conversation to children. You know, mm-hmm. when you come home from the hospital and you envision this this life with your child. Yeah. Yeah. But here we're talking about as adults, treating that inner child that we have as someone who needs to be nurtured. Right. And you need to be the one to nurture, right? Yeah, right. It's good. Very,
1: very mm. powerful.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think some people could be so turned off by the thought of oh, inner child. That's so hmm, you know, woo woo, woo woo. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want to call so it. So eighties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I guess you can either you could also just say maybe term how or maybe my question would be how else could we term that? Would that just be like our insecurities, like treating that? Like s- I think it's more else? than that. I think okay. it's more than
1: that. It's, um, it, we are the sum, right? We are the sum. We have, I mean, we were made—we're we fearfully and wonderfully made. So yes. we think back to—we uh, have these great things called memories, right? Mm-hmm. And whether they're memories of our friends or memories of neighbors or um, summer games in the street when you know when you didn't have to worry about school and you could go barefooted mm-hmm. all day, or you know, somebody <laughs> had a pool in the neighborhood, or I mean, you just right—you just yep. get inspired when you think about what tickled you at certain ages, totally. Yeah. And it's wonderful, and you should have a smile on your face thinking about that right now, mm-hmm. as we do. Mm-hmm. Well that's a younger part of ourselves that we just yeah. connected to. Yeah, okay. That's and that good. part is probably doing okay. But there's other parts that don't have all those nice memories yeah. and had to deal with some hard things and mm-hmm. they were just caught up short. And this isn't uh, you know, I have somewhere in my notes a, a whole um um preceding comment about this isn't to blame your parents and right. it isn't to label yourself and it isn't to find fault that keeps you stuck yeah Th- that isn't what this is about this is about understanding with curiosity and with openness and not judgment in order to heal and move forward that's mm-hmm. it, it grow heal move forward so and cool. that's that's what it's about right excellent
2: yeah you said it when you we said um you know, you have that smile on your face right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was smiling as you're talking about, you know, my, my mind went back to the times where I'm swimming in my aunt's pool or whatever else, because yeah, that brings back good memories. And I think what, what you're saying here, that's really powerful is that we are the sum total of our experiences. So when you do bring up those images, the, the connecting thoughts, of like you say swimming pool in the warm summer days, I go right there, I'm there. Yes. But then if anything is connected in my day to day that's like maybe I have a bad memory about cars. Right. I get in my car and I instantly connected with that. Right. That deeper memory that that brings up all those insecurities and trauma. And mm-hmm. and so some people, like their their younger child right. is connected. They're connected in their adulthood to those those darker moments.
1: Right. And that's why we don't, we've put distance Mm -hmm. between ourselves and that younger child who holds those memories within us. Right. It's not, it's not the same thing as a multiple personality split or (laughs) all kinds of other things. Again, that we mislabel. It's not, that isn't what we're talking about. We're just talking about how we organize ourselves in order to survive and in order to, um, Get through life, and we do it any way we can, in any way that works. Mm -hmm. And we we are pretty creative when it comes to all that. But at some point, we were meant to go back when it's safer, when we have support, when we're in a better place. We were meant to go back and get healing for that. We were never meant to carry. It through. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a Christian song that's been around for a while now um, called "Dear Younger Me," mm-hmm. and there's a line in that that just brings me to tears every time I think about it. You were never meant to carry this beyond the cross. So good. you were. You, life is about life is this thing that we were made for to enjoy, yeah. and while there are hard things in it that we do have to deal with, we are still made for love and for joy and for good things. And I believe there's still a God who sees that we heal from those hard things in order to grasp all the good that is there for us.
0: So good. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. As we transition to start closing here, um, what are some resources that you would recommend for couples who are hearing themselves in a lot of what you're discussing and they want to dive more deeply into this topic?
1: So... Um you can go the attachment route and kind of like how we did today. And if that, um, piqued your curiosity and seemed like a good inroad and maybe something that your spouse and you could both learn a little from there's, um, I just looked this morning and went on YouTube and, um, Googled attachment and found four little, um, kind of cartoony five to seven minute videos that were pretty, uh, pretty interesting, pretty, um, easy to understand, uh, Um, helpful. So, um, we'll have those available for you. That's great for
0: folks who aren't necessarily a reader. Exactly. So we'll attach those
1: in the show notes, folks. Okay. There's also, there'll be a few books up there. Um, so one is called Attachments. It used to be called something else. Um, why you do the things you do. And okay. then the publisher renamed it attachments. Okay. And it's, uh, the subtitle is why you love, feel, and act the way you do. And it's by Dr. Tim Clinton and Dr. Gary Sibsey. And this is actually, uh, the material in this book was what introduced me, um, way back at a conference years ago. Okay. And, um, it very, um, um, intriguing and helpful and applicable to just getting a sense of yourself and your life story and how it might, um, be a blueprint in you that has, um, both served you well and not served you well and what things you can do around that to improve.
2: And over 30 years, you've probably seen a lot of people find healing yeah. yes. wow. through understanding this stuff.
1: Yes. Yes. It's, it's just a great entry point. It's not the only entry point you can, you can enter a house through a front door, side door, window, back door, (laughs) and this is just one. So, um, yeah, uh, there's the other book we mentioned earlier, uh, or we mentioned the author, Dr. Susan Johnson. She wrote a book called hold me tight. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, probably the best book on couple interaction and attachment. It's where we were talking about the dance they do and the demon dialogue and all that. So that's in there and that's Mm -hmm. a great book. And then, um, the last one I didn't really talk too much about, it's called how we love and it's by Mylon and Kay Yurkovich. And, uh, they're a couple that, um, took it in a slightly different direction. And if we had another hour, we could talk more about that. (laughs) But, um, they, instead of, talking about insecure attachment in the way that we have today, they talk about it in more, um, there's an avoider, there's a pleaser, there's a
0: A vacillator
1: and a vacillator. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they actually have five, um, insecure attachment characteristic clusters Mm -hmm. that they talk about and how, when one gets together with the other, what that looks like in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that's a lot more detail, a lot more we didn't have time for yeah. today.
0: And they actually have it on their website too, where you can see this and this, and it comes together on a
1: map. Right. It's yeah. like a grid and you can click on the combo that you and your significant other make up and, uh, and go there and find out that, <laughs> you know, the, Uh, upside and downside of all that. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also have a pretty uh, great little assessment tool for free. Mm -hmm. And so their um, website is uh, www.howwelove.com. And um, you can go on there and and take the assessment and, uh, and diagnose, uh, according to their categories and then click right down and find out what information that would be helpful for you.
0: Excellent. And we will link that as well. So you guys can click that and figure out your attachment style. So, um, you guys, uh. If you're listening right now and you are enjoying what you're listening to, we would love it if you took some time to rate and review the podcast. It just helps us reach more couples and uh, spread the word. So we really appreciate it. As we close, Linda, we close all of our podcasts the same way and we ask you to fill in the blank and we're going to ask you, uh, Dear Young Married Couple, and then you'll just fill in the blank with advice uh, that you think a lot of young married couples could benefit from. Okay.
1: Okay you didn't tell me this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So dear young married couple, um, first of all, congratulations. Enjoy the ride of your beginnings. They are exciting. They are, um, euphoric at times. They are, um, just, um, wonderfully blessed, uh, in how you get together and in the chemicals that flow and the connection that happens and the new discoveries and the just amazingness that is all involved in that. And, um, at some point it does ebb, um, don't want to be the downer on this, but (laughs) at some point it does ebb to give rise to places to grow and places that, um, that you, need healing. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I say to all my couples is, um, marriage is the best thing and the hardest thing you will ever do. Mm -hmm. It's designed to be that way. You're not in the wrong and you're not doing something wrong when that happens. It's, it's designed to bring up every last detail of what needs to be addressed in us uh in how we give and how we receive. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna do that with the person that we spend the most time with and yes. and have the most, hopefully the most trust build up in with. Mm-hmm. And so that um will naturally happen. And it can be hard at times, it can be painful at times, but it can also be incredibly rewarding and growing. And that's how it was meant to be. Beautiful. So, yeah. Love that. Yeah. Wow.
0: If you guys want to get in contact with linda you can contact her at linda carlos at creekside we'll also include that in the show notes and um she takes clients who are in california and she does do online counseling as well for those folks in california
2: thank you so so much you're so welcome this, this has fun. been very very informative even for me yes I was just we're like, learning yeah, a ton this is good. Good. This thank is good. good thank you
0: thank you linda absolutely
2: all right friends We really hope that you got a ton out of today's conversation. And if you want help, if you want personal guidance with individual counseling or couples counseling, or even help with you as a couple reaching the goals you have, just reach out. Give us a call at 916-678-1797 or shoot us an email at hello at com.
0: No matter where you are in the world or in your marriage, we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward progress. We also post marriage advice regularly on our Instagram, which is at Dear Young Married Couple. And we'd love for you to join us in conversation there. All right. See you next week.